0: Uh, to second Samuel chapter sixteen I'll be reading uh, verses five through fourteen and that is our, our text second Samuel sixteen and starting at verse five what's happening is that, Uh, Absalom and an army of the men of Judah are coming to Jerusalem and they are coming to put Absalom on the throne to kill David. And David and his people, and he has, uh, we don't know how many soldiers, we know he's got quite a few, Uh, soldiers and servants are running, they are leaving town, they are getting out of Jerusalem and trying to put some distance between them. And so this happens during that time. And so, verse 5 of 2 Samuel 16, Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming from there. He came out, cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my, my lord the king? Please, let me go over there and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David." Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite, him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Thus ends our reading. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, once again, having read your holy, infallible, inspired word, a word that has so much power, so much excellence, we pray that your spirit would be here in power, that you would that that you would be with my mouth, that you bring together my thoughts and words, and bring them out in exactly the form and the fashion that you desire. And Father, that you would be with, your, with everyone here present, everyone listening, that they would be strengthened, that they give, be given exactly the portion it is that they need, that they be encouraged and lifted up. And for those that do not yet know you, Father, that do not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray, have mercy, open their hearts, and turn them to the one King of kings and Lord of lords, the one name under heaven. By, me, by which men might be saved, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name alone we pray. Amen. This past week, I uh, preached on Lord's Day 10 at, uh, at Eastmanville, which concerns uh, what we believe about the doctrine of providence. Because, you know, the, the catechism is, is going along and, it, and, it's, and it's talking about, you know, the, the whole idea of the Heidelberg Catechism is to find the one true comfort now the the whole catechism it begins with that idea what is my only comfort in life and death and and the whole catechism is actually set up to prove that point where is my only comfort and so as it moves along um, in Lord's Day 7 it asks how um, how we are saved and we're saved by faith well by faith in what? And, and, and so, by faith in these truths, believing these things. So what are these things that Christians must believe in order to be saved? And, and uh, in Lord's Day 8, we receive the, uh, the Apostles' Creed as a simple creed that describes these simple truths that all Christians must believe in order to be saved. And so, uh, Lord's Day 9 begins by asking the question, um, what, what, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so it begins to to delve into the depth of that. And then in Lord's Day 10, we're really focusing on that idea of Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And it it says, in the first question and answer speaks of the providence of God as that almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures so that all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand and the second question and answer uh, asks this how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us and the answer is we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and father that nothing will separate us from his love etc etc so, uh, excuse me. So, the doctrine of providence, and, and I use the word doctrine, but the word doctrine in its best form, in its truest form, just means teaching—the teaching of the Word of God on this thing. And I, and I have to tell you, I, I and I, I told my congregation the same thing. I love preaching about providence. I, I do. I, providence is is the to me one of the most essential foundational doctrines uh, that we live by. It's, It's more than just believing that God rules all the circumstances of the world around us. It affects how we see the world and how we act or react to the world. Providence affects how we see the world and how we act or react to the world. And when I say the world, brothers and sisters... I'm talking about all the circumstances of our life in the world, good or bad. So whatever's happening to us, um, the the doctrine or the teaching of providence that the Word of God gives us, um, it gives us this very solid sense that completely affects how we see things in the world, how we see these things happening to us in the world, and how we react to them in the world. And a, a, a very powerful and sweet example of this is found in 2 Samuel 16. And thematically, we see how David's understanding of God's providence is at the very center of how he acts and reacts in this affliction, in this tough situation. So first of all, and I'll just give you the points as I go along. It's too hard to give them all at one time. So I'll just give them as we go. Um, The first part we look at is the affliction of the righteous. All right, so the situation I, I explained a little bit, uh, but just to go a little bit in depth, it's the worst time in David's life. This is absolutely the worst time in David's life. And, and David's been through a lot. He's been through a lot when he was young. He was running from Saul. He, he spent 10 years running from Saul. And he's been through some hard, hard times before. But nothing is equal to this. Now it's his own son, but not only is it his own son... It's his own people from Judah. These were his strength. Judah is his tribe, his people, his strength. And they've all gone over, it appears, to Absalom. So he's running, not just from his people, but also his own son. And, and, and actually, what we see is we, we see him leaving the, the. A thousand years later, his son, on the night in which he was taken, will basically take the same route, at least part way. He leaves out the eastern gate, just as Jesus did with his disciples after the Lord's Supper. And he goes down um, into the valley of Kidron, crosses the the brook Kidron, and then walks up and and starts going up the Mount of Olives. David has gone through the same thing. If you read just before this, he's climbing up the Mount of Olives, and and he's in tears, and the people are weeping with him. And and you just get that sense. There's a a deep connection between him and Jesus Christ at this point. And so he's walking up, and they're in tears, they're weeping, But, of course, Jesus stops at the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, has that that last very, very brutal prayer um, where he even asks God to to come and and to to, to allow this cup to be taken from him. Um, David, on the other hand, keeps going. He goes up over the mountain. He goes down and starts down the mountain, and it's on the backside of the mountain that we find this situation happening. And and what happens is there's a lot caught up in this this text. There was a man. Um, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul. Now the Bible expects us to not be dumb. Okay, it expects us to understand history and how history moves and how how things work. Now you and I have been brought up in a, in a democratic republic, so maybe we are dumb when it comes to the way kingdoms work. But the, the way it works is that. When in the ancient houses, all the way up into the 1800s, even into the early 1900s, there were royal houses all over the world. And the way that they have always worked is that that when a a certain family attains the throne, a man attains the throne, so who's he going to have administer his government, right? Um, A lot of jobs are going to end up going to the people that he knows and he trusts, which is his family. That's the way. It's nepotism. It's always... It, nepotism is the way of the world. It always has been. And, and so what that means is that when King Saul was the ruler of Israel for 40 plus years, this man, Shimei, had both honor and opportunity. And when I say opportunity, I, I'm talking about opportunity for um, economic opportunity. He's making money off this deal, right? His, his, his uncle, his brother, whatever... We don't know exactly his relationship to the house of Saul, but he's part of the family of the house of Saul. So he's close enough that it was a good life for him. But here's the problem. It is well known, historically, that when that house, that royal house is is cast down, and another house arises, arises, that everything that was true about that house before is no longer true. So all the honor and all the opportunities that he had before are gone. But it's worse than that. In fact, many people know this. If you study history at all, you'll know that if your royal house gets cast down, the, the, the best thing to do is get a ticket out of town, get, get out of the country, go to someplace else for a while. And the reason is, is because if you're part of the old royal family, when the new royal family comes in, What that means is that the new royal family and their tribe and their people are going to be watching and listening closely. A lot of times they'll just wipe them out. In ancient years they always they would just go on a killing spree and kill a bunch of them. Just to set the tone. Because the issue is is that the old house still has a lot of people that like them and care about them around the country and would like to see them rise again. So they, they constitute a possible threat. And so the, the, the king that's in power now, his ear is very open, and if he hears anything from these people. So this is a man, Shimei, it's very easy to draw a picture. He is a bitter, resentful, angry man who has had to keep his mouth shut for a long time. We believe that, that David was in, in, uh, on, the, on the throne probably for at least 30 years at this point, probably more. So that means that this man Shimei, who's lived not far from Jerusalem, has had to keep his mouth shut. This resentment, this bitterness, this anger that he has to David, he, he blames David for everything. He doesn't look to God. He doesn't put any responsibility on Saul. It's all about David. All the evil of this world, is he's got it focused on this one individual, David. So that when this situation happens, this man is jumping for joy. Why? Are things going to be better for him with Absalom? If Absalom gets on the throne, is, is, the, are those, uh, is that honor and, and those economic opportunities going to open up for him again? Probably not. He's still from the tribe of Benjamin, and Absalom's still from the tribe of Judah. They're not going to just stand, start handing out favors. Maybe he'll get something, maybe he won't. But the bottom line is, he doesn't care. The, the evil man, the evil man that caused my family uh, our pain and, and what we've had to the indignities we've had to suffer all these years. That's what's happening, and that's what the writer wants you to see. That's what is driving this man. He comes out with all this bitterness, this resentment, and it's it's like it's the cursing. This like curse, coursing through his body. It's it's so deep inside of him, and it's just spilling out of him. So at the worst moment in David's life, all of a sudden he has this fool on the other side of a little, probably just just a small canyon. He's on one hillside and the other guy in that village is on the other canyon. There's not a huge space between them. It's not hard for his soldiers to go across if they need to. And this man just comes out screaming and cursing and throwing stones. And brothers and sisters, one of the things that you and I need to see, and I think that many of you have probably experienced this already, is that the one thing that all humans share is that we will experience affliction and sorrow. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you will. That is what life has in store for us. We will experience affliction and sorrow. And if you haven't yet... I'm not wishing it upon you. I don't desire it to be upon you. But it will be upon you at some point. Because you're a human. And the nature of affliction, the nature of affliction is that it's very personal. When you get cancer, it feels very personal. Right? When you wake up and you've been a healthy person and most of your life, or you think you have, and you wake up, you go to the doctor, and all of a sudden you've got cancer. Where did that come from? If something happens in your family, right? As we lose loved ones that are close to us out of time. I'm not talking about a 90 year old grandfather. That's painful, but expected, right? That's painful, but expected. But when a 40-year-old dies, or a 22-year-old dies, it's so personal. And to everyone that experiences this, affliction and sorrow are intensely personal. And everybody experiences it sooner or later. That is the nature of affliction. And one of the things that you and I need to see is that as David is going through this greater affliction, the greater affliction being that he is being cast off the throne, he's running from his capital city, he's running from his own son, he's running from his own tribesmen, that's already bad enough. But this man coming out and cursing and screaming and throwing stones at him, that adds the intensity of that personal. All of a sudden it feels like God has got his finger on me. And that's, the affliction of the righteous. When you and I go through that, you will feel that. I know that we come from, many of us come from old Reformed backgrounds, and I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong with old Reformed backgrounds. We thought that we could just put these formulas in a box. And then when we saw someone lose their son, or lose their daughter, or go through some tragic thing, that we could just come up to them and say, well... It's the Lord's will. He'll comfort you. And if that person happened to snap back at you in pain and in anger, you'd go home and say, well, he's not a very faithful person. I don't know how many, some of you older people have probably seen that. And it feels that way until it hits you. And then all of a sudden you get it. Wow. My, my doctrines are not making me feel better right now. I'm in pain. I'm in affliction. And it hurts. And it feels like God's finger is on me. And this man coming out and screaming these curses and throwing these stones. And, and it's kind of a, a cool interplay, right? Because he's really throwing stones. But the, but, the, but the Word of God really wants us to see and understand that the stones are not hitting him, right? Because he has soldiers around and they have shields. And, and there's no doubt that there's no stone that's coming close to David. But let me tell you something. These curses that he's hurling at David are like stones that are hitting very close to home. Not in the first part, right? We see this man coming out, he's cursing, he's screaming, and he says, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue, and that rogue is actually, um, you man of Belial, which is a very deep, uh, Belial is kind of a, the sense that I get from it, is that he was some kind of almost demonic type, legendary figure, whatever. But the idea being, is that it's a man of evil, because a lot of times in the Old Testament, it's the son of Belial, which means it's some kind of Character, some kind of like satanic type idea out there, an evil, evil person. You are a son of Belial, and here he's a man of Belial. So here's God's anointed. He's a he's a man of Belial. He has brought upon you the blood. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And I believe that you know when these stones are being thrown, some of them are just not hitting them at all. Because one of the beautiful things about David, and if you know anything about the uh, word of God concerning David, that David did not raise his hand against God's anointed. This man was trying to kill him. He lied about him. He sent men after him to kill him, to destroy him. He put all of Israel against David, and David had done nothing wrong. And then when when the time came... And he, God actually put Saul in his hands. And he has the opportunity. He actually got his own people telling him, Kill him! Kill him! God has delivered him into your hand. He wants you to kill him. No. That's the Lord's anointing. I will not touch him. And so he, he honored the man. So I don't believe that some of these stones coming at him, the Lord has brought upon you the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have rain. Yeah, this, this is not really hitting him. But... And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. I believe those hit home really tight. Because David was just like us. That as this affliction is hitting him and now this man comes out and it's like God is like taking a needle and just jamming it inside of him. And David understands that some of these things aren't true, but some of these things are hitting awful close to home. First of all, I'm on the run. I've left the, the seat of government. I've left Jerusalem, Zion, the capital city. I, I've left everything behind me, and I've left the throne behind me. And when he says that, that God has put, put somebody else, um, he's put the, delivered the, the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son, he's really, he doesn't know. David does not know at this moment if he's going to make it back. He has no idea. He does not know what God's will is right now. He has no idea if God is going to bring him back. This man might be just talking like a prophet. It's done, David. And I'm delivering it into the hand of someone else. Put it together, what he says next. So now you're caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Now, of course, Shimei means he's bloodthirsty against Saul and his household. But David, that's not what's said, David. David knows. David said in Psalm 51, something that he probably penned long before this. Right? He he, he said, I I, I confess, I acknowledged my transgression before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found blameless when you judge and and, and, and just when you speak. Right? And, And then a little bit later he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. He had committed adultery, and then to hide that adultery, he had the husband wouldn't fall into line and do what he was supposed to do. So David had no choice. He tells Joab, put him in the hottest part of the battle, and and so that he might die. And he did. And God said, You murdered him. So right now, these words are hitting pretty close to home, aren't they? And that's what happens to us, too. When we get into affliction, we get into deep pain. And the world gets turned upside down. Every now and then you'll hear something from someone or somewhere. It'll come out and it'll feel like God is sticking a needle right in you. So how do you react? Well, the first thing that we see in our text, brothers and sisters, is the, is the, uh, the reaction or the response of our flesh to the afflictions of this world. Uh, Abishai... Is a, is a nephew of David, and, he, and he's a mighty man of Israel. Uh, he's a mighty man of David. He's listed as one of the mighty men of David. He's a good man. He's a godly man, and he loves David, but he comes from a family that they all have the same problem, and a lot of us, right, especially from Friesland, right, a lot of us have that issue. We have that problem that we don't know when to shut up. We don't know, you know, the, what the reaction should be. We want to go violent right away, and his family, the the. Um, David's sister, Zeruiah, it seems like Joab and Abishai and uh, Asahel, uh, he's already dead. But those three brothers, that's their first reaction. We're going to kill him. He's from that family. So Abishai said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please, let me go over there and take off his head. It's that simple. And this is the reaction of the flesh. He represents the reaction of our flesh. Because let me tell you something, and you know if you've been through affliction, if you have suffered, you know exactly what I'm saying. When those things hit us, one of our reactions in the flesh, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. Why am I being judged like this? Because let me tell you something. Affliction always feels the same for everyone. All of a sudden it feels like you're on an island. You're looking around and nobody else is on that island but you are. Why am I being set apart? Why why do you have your finger on me? And our reaction in the flesh is to to push back against that. Our reaction is to say, no, I, I don't deserve this. And you think about the reactions of people in the world to, to cancer, and we even see it in the church. It's, it's just—it's actually sad. I understand it from the world. I don't understand it from people in the church. You know, I, I don't deserve this. This, isn't, this shouldn't be happening to me. And then other people will join in and say, oh, you don't deserve this. This is terrible. And, and then you'll say, you know, we're going we're gonna to beat cancer. We're going to whip cancer. Right? Go on social media. I don't spend much time on it, and I'm not going to, but I do have people that do, and, and every now and then I see a little note here and there, and, and the foolishness. Ah! We're going to destroy this. We're going to defeat this, you know, whatever it is that is our affliction. Or we'll even get angry at God. And Abishai represents that. He represents the pride, the strength, And the righteousness or justice of the flesh. Right? Because Abishai is right. David is the anointed one of God. This man is doing something that's against the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God is that you do not lift your hand and you do not speak against the anointed of God. To do so is a death offense. And as far as, as Abishai is, is concerned, yes, we're on the run, and the, how this whole thing is going to play out, we don't know yet. But as far as, as I can see, David is still the king. He is still the anointed one of God. This man is ungodly and he's evil. He's doing what is against the will, the will of God. And so, in my strength, I have the strength now, I can cross that canyon, and I can take this man down. Okay, I've got the strength. Pride. You know what? Abishai loves David, and he's hurting just as bad as David in some ways. And this man and his his curses and his stones—they really hit home. They hit his pride. Just when we like when we get afflicted, it, there's a there's a portion of us that it, it hits us in our pride. It's almost like. God I thought I was a pretty decent Christian I I thought I was pretty straight and narrow I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do I I think I'm doing it at least as good as the guys around me and now why am I getting picked out right? and so Abishai's looking at this thing and and he, he thinks this is ridiculous this man is ungodly he's doing an evil thing against the will of God we've got the power and it's just it's just he's doing what's wrong He's doing something evil. He's doing something against the word of God. We have every right to judge him and bring justice. And that's our flesh. In our flesh, we we rationalize why something's happening to us and why it shouldn't be happening to us or whatever. We, We have all these different reactions in the flesh. And that's part of all of us. And Abishai actually represents that. But now let's turn and look at, at the reaction or the response of the godly who has confidence in the providence of God. In fact, it's so amazing that it's almost stunning that David says these things. The first thing he says, What have I to do with you, sons of Drew? What he's really saying is, what am I supposed to do with you guys? That's what he's saying, just in our, in our parlance, in our, in our words. Oh, what am I supposed to do with you? This is what you always do. This is always what you want to do, right? Let's kill him, right? And and that's always the answer. But then David says, so let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? That is a mind-blowing idea. So this wicked man, and Shimei, make no mistake, he is a wicked man. And he is definitely doing something that's against the revealed will of God. But David's words almost make him sound as if he is a, he's a prophetic agent. That he was in his house worshiping or something and he got a word from God. You know what? Go curse David. That's almost as if what it sounds like. But do not mistake it. That's not what he's saying. What David is saying is something that you and I just need to understand. Because I'm telling you right now, it is the greatest comfort in life. When you understand that God controls all things, and this is all through the word of God, and that's what David believes, that everything is under the power of God's sovereignty, the wicked and the righteous. Even the wicked in their ungodliness, in some way, are fulfilling the sovereign will of God. How do we know that? Because he lets them. If it was against his will, he would change their path. That's all there is to it. Because he has that power. Because he's sovereign. And that's what the king says. So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. And David said to Abishai and his servants, see how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now? Uh, may this Benjamite... Let him alone, and, and all he's doing is he's kind of rationalizing a little bit on on Shimei's behalf. He says, "My own son who has received everything from me; wants my life. This man at least has some reason. He had honor and position and wealth and power. And when I came when I came to the throne, he lost that. So I at least get." From a human standpoint, and I can rationalize at least why he's so bitter and resentful. He's not saying it's a righteous way to live. In fact, Shimei actually shows how wicked he is. Because even as David humbles himself under the afflictions of God, what is this man doing? He's revealing that all these years. He's never come to terms with it. He's never looked at God and said, you know what, the Lord is the one who took the throne from Saul. He's never said that. It's David. The evil man. The man of Belial. Let him alone. And let him curse For so the Lord has ordered him. And brothers and sisters, I find this to be a mystery of the highest order. Do you understand the Trinity? I don't. Okay? Do you understand all the workings of election and and predestination? I don't. Do you understand all the workings of providence? I don't. But I believe it. David knows with all his heart That God is in charge of this situation. That he is sovereign over this, this situation. And this man, for the moment, is doing something that God wills. God is testing David. And God tests the righteous. He tests us when we're oppressed, when we're afflicted, when we suffer. He's testing us. When God tests his people, he's cleansing them. He's strengthening them. And he's putting them in a position for better things yet. David understands that. David's not saying this man's righteous. In fact, just to give you a, I know I'm going long and I apologize. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit gives you grace to forgive me. So, but in the meantime, I'm just going to keep going. Okay, but... David knows that this man is not righteous in his outward deeds, in, his, in the revealed will of God. In fact, there's three acts that play out. This is Act 1. In Second uh, Samuel 19, we see the Act 2. Act 2 is David comes back, on his way back to the throne... And Shimei is the first man to meet him with a thousand men from Benjamin, not to fight him, not to resist him, but to get down on his knees in front of David and beg his forgiveness. And then, Act 3, when David goes to die, before David dies, he says to Solomon, That man is an evil man. Do not let his, his head go down to the grave in peace. And so Solomon tests this man. He says you have to stay within the borders of Jerusalem. You can do, and Jerusalem at that time was a glorious place. You can do whatever you want within the the walls of Jerusalem, but if you go outside the walls of Jerusalem, you will die. And he was okay for a while, but one day he decided, well, I've got to go after my slaves. So he left the walls of Jerusalem. He left, and what it really showed is that he did not honor the word of God. He did not honor um, the word of the king. And so in the end, it plays out, and, and the story reveals who this man really is. But the, the, the beauty of what is happening with David is that David, look at the, in the, the final portion, I'll just say it, the, the fourth part here is the triumph, the triumph of, of, of the righteous in the knowledge of God's providence. He says, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. I, I don't really like, uh, I don't know if you guys are using the New King James, but I, I don't really like that repay. Um, it's actually a, a very important word, very simple word in, in the Hebrew, and it's the word shuv. And shuv is a word that's almost like a covenantal word. It, 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 shuv, it, it just means to turn, to turn or to return, and it's often used to speak of repentance. And so the whole idea is, as you're going down the road, you're going this way, You're doing your own thing, and then by the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden you come to a knowledge or uh, uh, an understanding that you're going in the wrong way, and you turn or return and go back. And the idea is to go back to God. But here, I believe that what David is saying is, is that God's judgment against me is righteous. You see why he doesn't judge this man is that David understands something that Abishai doesn't. He understands that if I'm going to judge righteously and if I'm going to be judged righteously, at a certain point, I'm going to run out of room. At a certain point, I do not have enough righteousness for the Lord to bring me back to the throne. I do not have enough righteousness to prove all my detractors evil and wrong. Because he knows he's a sinner. He knows that just like we all do, brothers and sisters, and that's what affliction brings out. Affliction brings out this knowledge that I'm a sinner and I do not have enough righteousness in my life. I'm not going to be better than every person that comes against me. He is, he is with this man But what about the next man? What about the next man? What happens when somebody from his wife's old family comes to him and says what did you do with Bathsheba? What did you do with Uriah? Where's his righteousness going to go that day? And so what what David sees and understands is that the judgment of God has to play out in some way He understands that that God's judgment against him is not wrong. But what he's doing is he's trusting that God is going to provide an atonement, that God is going to provide a righteousness that is not his own, and that in, in his tender mercy, in his loving kindness, in his grace, he's going to take David, and he's going to reverse this, and he's going to raise up the one who trusts God so much that he humbles himself... Before God's affliction. David understands this isn't about him and Shimei. This is about me and God. And if God wants to cast me down. I do not have enough righteousness to resist him. But he believes passionately in God's mercy. His goodness and his love. And he believes that God will turn from judgment. And if he humbles himself before the Lord, if he repents and he trusts in the Lord and he shows mercy, that it may be that God will raise me up again. A thousand years later, on the same mountain, Jesus Christ would allow himself to be taken by ungodly and wicked men who would judge him in a way. And in a way, that judgment would be righteous. It would be righteous because Isaiah the prophet says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's real iniquity being laid on Jesus. It's not his. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. He's the perfect one. He's the just one. He is the righteous one. But... The word of God has said that that the, the Lord is going to lay our iniquity on him. So in a way, the judgment is righteous. Jesus would humble himself under the weight of our iniquities. He would humble himself to take our punishment for sin. He would not accuse those who accused him. He would not speak evil against those who spoke evil of him. He would not return evil for evil, but would even say, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. Do we not see this in David already? Like David, Jesus would trust the Father fully to justify and to vindicate him. He trusted the Father even fully, even to the death, believing that the Lord would not allow his Holy One to remain in the grave, but would raise him up to the highest place where he has been given a name that is above every name and is the ruler of heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, saints in the Lord, truly believing in the the almighty providential power of God is to believe that it will be God who justifies me, it will be God who vindicates me. And the next time that someone comes against you, or you're in affliction and pain, and you hear someone say something dumb, or something barbed, in the name of Jesus, let it go. Forgive them. And trust that God will vindicate you. And the word of God tells us that he will. That he will. And here's why. Because Jesus has already fully taken the punishment for our sins. And it says, that's why it says in 1 John 1, that he is just and righteous to forgive us of all our sins. He's just because it's not right to make someone pay for the same sin twice. And if he made Jesus pay for my sin, and now he's going to make me pay for my sin, that's not righteous. And God is just and righteous. Amen. Father, once again we come before you this this evening hour, and we pray, Lord, that that your Word and Spirit would would uh, be written into our hearts, that the Spirit would write our, your word into our hearts in such a way that it just becomes so much a part of us. For we know that the problem is, is that, that a lot of times we think that we, we we believe in you, we think that we know the word, but when we get tested, when we get pushed, when affliction and suffering come upon us, our, our first reaction seems to be to forget everything. But Father, we pray that, that your Spirit would continue to write these words into the into the fleshly tables of a, of a new heart and that we would have wisdom to forgive as we have been forgiven. That we would have wisdom to just turn and to trust you. That we would have the wisdom, the knowledge and the blessing of your word and spirit in, in such a way that you would bring us through the affliction. For, Lord, you have made these amazing promises from the beginning to the end, that those who are cast down, those who trust, those who turn to me and call upon me, I will raise them up out of the dust. I will exalt them to high places. Father, thank you for your word, your spirit, your truth, and, and most of all, your love to us in Christ.